I want to invite you to turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 3. We have a insert that has this text on it, if that would be of help to you. And before we start, I want to just, again, try to bring you right back to where we were last Lord's Day, should you have been with us, where I think one of the most glorious texts in all of the New Testament, John says very, very clearly to us that we're in the last hour, and when he returns, we shall be made like him. We looked in 1 Corinthians 15 last week at the mystery that the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable and just the glory of the promise of the gospel that we will be made like him. And so the things John has told us so far in this letter, that we need to continue in him, not discontinue and walk away from the simple, clear, beautiful gospel. We need to continue in him. I was reading this morning in Matthew 24, and Jesus says something very similar. You'd expect that because John is actually just sharing with the church what he received from Christ in his time with him. So let me just read to you a few words from Jesus. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 10. Sounds a lot like what we've been looking at in the, gospel, in, in the letter from John. Jesus said this, he says, In that day many will fall away and will betray one another and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and will lead many astray. Doesn't sound just like what John's been telling us. This is from the lips of Jesus. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love for many will grow cold. Think of that word of Jesus. It's going to be so difficult. So much hate is going to be in the world. So many false prophets are going to step forward. are going to neutralize the power of the gospel. For many, their love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is the gospel of the kingdom that will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. That's exactly what John's been telling us. You're in the last hour. False prophets will arise. Continue in the gospel. Don't discontinue on one of many sides of the cliff to fall off of. And now we turn to our text and, and just see where John continues. It's going to sound a lot like what we just read from Jesus there. So stand with me if you would. This is in your insert, verse 11 through 24, that would finish out chapter 3 of this amazing letter. John writes this, he says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide, excuse me, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, 
We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. This is the word of God. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would enable us to believe that you abide in us and that we abide in you. Because of what you have done in the gospel of your son, we pray that we would consider what it means to be a people of love in a world of hate. Help us to track with your servant, John, and would you, Holy Spirit, apply this to our lives in very real ways. Big picture for all of us, but also very specific for your servants in this room. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I've known this text was coming for a while, and allow me to say a few things about it personally. First thing is this is a text that I have held on to since probably middle school. That's not something I can say very often, a text that my parents used with me when I was a child. I remember asking my mother, uh, and I was obviously getting a little older and thinking about the world, saying, Mom, why, why is divorce not permitted according to the Bible? What about when people just fall out of love? Why isn't that okay according to the scriptures? And she said, well, Jim, 1 John 3, 18. Because God is greater than the heart. So if my heart falls out of love, and I've been in covenant with one before God, and he's brought us together, then my not having enough love and feeling different in my heart is not a justification for that, because who's greater than the heart? God is. I remember my mom sharing that with me about human love. But what we're going to see today is John, John's very aware that you and I have hearts that are prone to wander. We have hearts that should be reassured that we are children of God, as we've been tracking with the book. But sadly, when we look at the standard in this book, our reassurance is very quickly replaced with fear of condemnation, isn't it? We don't look like we ought at all. What does God do with that? Well, 1 John 3, 18. God knows everything, and he is greater than your heart. So there's a lot of assurance in the text we're about to study. And it's just some, before I knew the doctrines of grace, I grew up in a very free will context of faith, performance driven, at least I was. This was a doctrines of grace text that was just poured into me. You have no hope if God is not greater than the heart. All right, so that's here. Second thing I want to say before we jump in is I think it's a text that's needed for today. You see those Characters at the top of the insert, if you're looking at them, maybe you've seen these bumper stickers. I'll just interpret it for you. I'm assuming that this means God is greater than our ups and downs. You seen that maybe on a car or you've seen people in social media spread that around. That's true. Is God not greater than our ups and our downs? I think if we follow the scripture's teaching, we would say God's the author of our ups and downs. Let's go even further than that. God alone determines what is up or down. There are times when we are feeling down when he is doing something that is glorifying to him and we are growing and being matured. So it's actually an up. There's times when we are up because we're full of ourselves and think everything is going great because we perform wonderfully and we should actually be down because we're living in pride. So yes, it's true. God is greater than our ups and downs, but this text of scripture is far more important than a nice little, you know, catchy bumper sticker. God is greater than our hearts. 
and our feelings about what is up and down. This is explicit from the scriptures. The God who knows you is greater than your heart. So we're going to enter into this today. Where does John start? Well, verse 11, John says there's a message that you should know. It's a message you've heard from the beginning, the beginning of your own salvation for sure. But I think you could even say from the beginning of time, the message is ultimately this. Ephesians 1, in love, God has predestined us to be adopted sons and daughters of God through Christ. It's to the praise of his glory, but that adopting love that we've received, which John's been teaching on, then now gives us the next imperative, which is we should be people of love and how we love one another. So this is the message from the beginning. It's also the message you've heard from the beginning. We are expected to be a people that reflect the love of God shown to us in Christ. You see in the outline, I kind of threw a couple yeah buts at you. Here's the first yeah but. It seems impossible, doesn't it, to be people of love? I mean, yeah, but we live in a world of hate. Yeah, but we live in a world with so much anger and entitlement and control. Yes, we're supposed to be a people of, of love. Yeah, but my circumstances and the people I'm around. And that's where John goes, isn't it? He says, we who have been beloved of God in Christ, we should not be like Cain. Who is Cain? Cain is the son of Adam and Eve. Let me read to you straight from Genesis chapter 4. Cain had a brother named Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and one of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry. His face fell and the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face falling? If you do well, if you do righteous, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you and you must rule over it. This is what God said to Cain. Well, as we look in the book of Genesis, we see that Cain did not rule over his anger toward God. He did not rule over his desire. And so we know he murdered his brother in the field. And what happens in our text is John asks, why? We actually have that right there in our text. Why did Cain murder his brother? And John answers and says, because Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Why did Cain do it? Because evil hates righteousness. That's why. The Bible's clear, though we don't understand all the parts of it. Cain's offering was received as evil in God's sight. He gave an offering that cost him nothing. When he thought things were unfair, he challenged the justice of God. He refused to recognize God's definition of what was right and holy and true and good. And then what Cain did in his rage is he directed his rage at God toward whoever the nearest representative was of obedience to God. And so he sought to destroy the righteousness of God represented by his brother. John is saying to you and I, that's the world we live in. We live in a world where evil hates righteousness. And people despise the thought of the glory and authority of God that's been revealed in the scriptures. They feel untouched by his governance, unconcerned about his holiness. Quite frankly, many people think that they would do it very differently if they were God. And if anybody ever says that to you, say, I'm sure you would. You are fickle. I am fickle. You are finite. 
I am finite. God is not fickle nor finite. You would do it very differently than God. And what the text of Scripture is saying, those then who are angry that God would be the holy God he's revealed himself to be, they direct their anger and rage and hatred toward the nearest representation of God's righteousness, of God's law, of God's definition of good. And here's what John says. That should be you. That should be me. If you are his child and you've received the affection of the father, his adopting love, then those who are going to vent their spleen and anger against God should vent it toward you. He says in verse 13, don't be surprised when the children of Cain in this world who reject God's authority and God's affection and even the need for it, they hate you. And the holy standard you believe you must live by. And the need for mercy you believe you must have. Don't be surprised when the children of Cain hate you. See, Cain pursued death in his rejection of God because rejection of God is death. That's what the text is saying. Sin and hate are death. And everyone who has hate for his brother is a murderer like Cain. Everyone who's a murderer, John says, does not have eternal life abiding in them. Now, this is a little tricky, isn't it? Because didn't the thief on the cross end up being welcomed into paradise? And yet, we, we know there are thieves and murderers and those who have sinned that turn and repent to God and they're not known now as a murderer, are they? What does 1 Corinthians 6 say? Such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed. If you repent of your sin and turn to God in Christ because God, Christ took all the wrath for sin, then you're not going to be judged as a murderer, not in God's sight. You are righteous in his sight because of the gospel. But the scriptures do say that those who have rejected God and hate their neighbor are murderers like Cain, and there's no eternal life for them. So that's where John is at. But I think what's important for you and me is to think that we live in the same world that Cain knew. We live in a world of hate. The same conflict rages in all of us. The conflict is this. It was, it was Cain's conflict. Will I exert my will against the Lord's and whose will will prevail? That's the conflict of Cain. And that's the conflict you and I know. It's the conflict of every human we know. Whose will is going to exert influence over myself, my life, and then ultimately all the people in whom I interact. Think of this on the, not just the personal level, people who say it's my will, not God's will. That's the personal battle. How about on the global cultural level? Do we not see tyranny of all kinds? People doing what's right in their own eyes, government Entities doing what's right in their own eyes, extracting freedom from their subjects, playing like they are God for those that are under their care and authority. Do we not see a world full of this battle being lived out on the personal level as well as on the cultural and the political level? Absolutely we do. Because according to chapter 5, verse 19, which we'll get to in about three weeks, we live in a world that lies under the power of the evil one, John says. A world full of Cain's children who've rejected God's authority and vent their anger on his children. That's what John says. And what I would say to you is it is hard. I've tried to share this in recent weeks. I feel like it's getting harder. And I don't think, again, it's not just because I'm getting older. I think it's because I'm getting older and it's getting harder. In this Western culture that we know very well, it is getting harder to be a child of God and to see in advance the hatred directed towards you because the simple gospel you believe in. We could go into all matter of examples. I'll spare you the time. But I'm, I'm entrusting that we know this battle among the children of Cain. 
and that we can understand what John is saying to us. So then maybe we get to the next, yeah, but not the one in your outline, but here's the next thought is, yeah, but what, what else am I supposed to do but fight hatred with hatred? I mean, are you not tempted, some of you, more than others, or more frequently than others, or it depends on your context, to respond to anger with anger? To be so fed up with a world that's rejected God sounds so foolish in its inconsistency, and you just want to shake the tree and have all the stupid fall to the ground because it doesn't make sense in this world, and yet you're the one that's stupid and foolish in the eyes of the world. And so anger wants to respond to anger. But look what John does. He says, it's not okay to just say, yeah, but we live in a world of hate full of Cain's children. We have to be honest about what we really are made up of. We're made up of people who've received the love of God. So the gospel's given to us in verse 16 and 17. We know what love is. In a world full of Cain's that do not know what love is. That's what John says to us. Look what he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. I mean, we've already had the letter say, by this we know love, that the Father has adopted us as his children. He's already said that. Now he says, by this we know love, the one who came as God in the flesh, he laid his life down for us. John goes straight to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus as God's solution for a world of hate, a world of God rejection. Jesus came, laid his life down as a payment to whom? The whole Bible tells us very clearly as a payment to his father who's holy and full of justice who demanded that his wrath be assuaged because the debt was too great to just dismiss it. So we know that Jesus came, Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, I came to pay the ransom, to pay the debt owed to lay my life down in love. So here's what John is saying. What's the dominant cause of your reactivity in your life? Is it the hatred and rage you experienced from the children of Cain? Is that what causes you to be prone to react? That's what you react most to? Or do you live as a child of God who most of your reactions are an immediate response to the magnitude of his love for you that he's given to you in Christ? Which is it? That's what John's saying to us. And so he goes on, says, we then should lay our lives down because the dominant thing we react to in life should not be the hatred of the people of Cain. It should be the love we received in Christ. So now, of course, when we lay our life down for another, we're not paying a debt that they owe to God. We cannot do that. Only the Holy One could do that. But what we are doing is living the same sacrificial ethos of the way we've been loved, we long to love others. So John says in verse 17, that means we open our hearts, we give of ourselves whenever we see a brother in need. This comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 15, by the way, where in the law of God it says, don't harden your heart when you see someone who's in need. And John's saying our hearts are open now because the love of God has opened our hearts when apart from his work, we'd be like the children of Canaan. We would just want to vent our anger at those who complicate or ruin our lives. John's saying the same thing Paul has said. He's saying your faith and your love go hand in hand. Right? Galatians 5 verse 6, Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith working itself through love. So in other words, faith looks like believing God has sacrificially laid his life down for us in Christ, so therefore we want to love like that. So John says, little children, it's really less important what you say 
then it's more important, do you love in deed and in truth? Not in word only. Now, John says, well, who are you supposed to love? He starts to clarify it for us. So notice in verse 11, he says, the message is that we should love one another. So, of course, it's everybody. Those you work with, those you know. Didn't Jesus himself say, you should love your enemies. Pray for them. So there's sort of a love everyone, one another component here. But look what John does in verse 10. And then again in verse 16, he says explicit things about love the brothers. Love those who are children of God in Christ with you. Love the brothers. It's said at least twice in this text with explicit emphasis. Now, what is John doing here? I think what he's doing is building on his argument. He's already said that we are brothers and sisters of God in Christ. We have the seed of Christ living inside us by the Holy Spirit. And we saw last week, what are we being made into? We're being made to, to be like him, not to become him. As some of you listened to a crazy video this morning. We're not saying we become Jesus-ish. We don't become incarnate the same way Christ was incarnate. But I tell you what, we will be made like him with glorified bodies that are more like his than are ours right now. So if that's true, and that's what we looked at last week, you know what John's saying? Then you love one another, the brothers and the sisters, in light of what is going on inside of them right now and in light of what they are becoming. There's a rather long quote in your back of your bulletin. And I give Troy Cash, our new pastoral intern, credit. So well done, young man. Um, at our staff meeting, this was his devotional text. He read to us from C.S. Lewis's sermon, 1941, The Weight of Glory. And I, it was such a clear connection to 1 John that I wanted to share it with you. So here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, for all of us, we must consider what lies before us. We are all awaiting a glorified body if we are in Christ. Here's what Lewis says. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or the weight or the burden of my neighbor's glory should be, my, should be laid daily on my back. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. C.S. Lewis is not saying people are gods and goddesses. He's saying that when we consider the immortal souls that people have... And the glorified bodies we are one day going to have if we are in Christ. That should change how we bear with the weight of one another's glory today. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature. Which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship it. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It's immortals whom we joke with, worship, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he or she is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him, Christ, the glorifier and the glorified glory himself is truly hidden. Wow. I think that's what John's saying. That's why he says, love the brothers, love the brothers. In other words, he's saying, we brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God with Christ's seed in us, being changed from one degree of glory to another till we are like him. It should change then how we live among each other. And the affection we have, the love that flows through us should be so radical because we see what God is doing in the life of one who may have a personality different than ours. 
Maybe kind of dull when we wish they were a little more spicy. Maybe kind of grumpy and downtrodden because they've had some circumstances that wear thin on them. But instead, we're just mesmerized that God, especially if they're brother and sister, that's what John's saying, is going to change them to be more like Christ than the person I see sitting before me. That's an amazing thing to consider. Let me ask you, do you view others in Christ like that? Do you consider that there's one of two types of people in the world? You're going to meet an immortal soul with whom you need to share the glory of God in Christ. That's called evangelism. Or you're going to meet a brother or sister in Christ and you should be looking to see the glory of Christ in them and anticipating the glory of Christ to overwhelm them on that day. We can't generate a love like this on our own. But this is what John is saying It's not something that we have on our own, but it comes from the dual source of the Father's love and the seed of Christ in us as Christ himself laid himself down for us. We're to be nothing like the children of Cain. Nothing. We're to have the explicit opposite of Cain's hostility toward God and rage against God's children be what identifies us. Because God's covered his hostility toward us in the gospel. He's laid his love his life down for us in love. And so we have to ask, what comes out of me then when I am bumped? As I did with the children. That's not something original to me. I was reading a commentator this week and he said, if you're carrying a cup which is filled to the brim and someone jogs your arm, whatever's in the cup will spill out. The unexpected knocks and irritations of life are a very similar indicator of the quality and content of life within. When you are bumped, what comes out of you? When you're bumped by someone, what do you see in them when they bump you? John is instructing us to be so opposite of the world of hate around us. So verse 19, he says, this really should be such a kind of love that identifies you. We should have reassured hearts when we think about it. In other words, as we think about the kind of love we received and we look around us at the love we give, we're reassured that we actually are children of God. We've experienced a love that the world of hate doesn't know. That's the next question, though. Does our heart reassure us when we see this kind of a picture of love, or do we start to suffer under the conviction that maybe, maybe we look a little bit more like Cain than we do like Christ? Maybe we spend a little bit more time demanding that others conform to our sense of justice and being unwilling to forgive them. Maybe we look more like Cain's in a world of hate than we do Christ in a world of holy redemption. And if it exposes us, then what's the next stop on our train? It's not a confidence before God, a a reassurance before God. It's actually this sense of condemnation. And I think John knows that that's the sense we have because that's where he goes. Look what he says. Verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us. When our hearts and lives are nothing close to his standard, when the anger that we have turns to hate and the Bible says, now you're like a murderer. We begin to be convicted and conflicted about the justice of God. And we, we know then that we would not stand before his holy judgment. We're actually worthy of his condemnation. So maybe the next yeah, but I put it for you in your outline. It's kind of a, yeah, but I know my heart. And I know my heart has not loved and laid itself down the way Christ laid himself down for me. I know my heart and I tend to be a taker, not a giver. 
I tend to be a judge of others, not a servant. You can go down the list. I know my heart. There's no way I don't stand condemned by a holy God. See, it's bad enough to live in a world of hate. It's blessing enough to know the love of Christ. It's terrifying when I see my heart spurn his love. Our hearts know things about ourselves that our worst enemies don't know. Is that not true? Our hearts, I think, know things about ourselves that Satan doesn't know. His accusations can't really fully know. Our hearts condemn us, don't they? And this is where John goes. Look in kind of verse 19 to 22. It's a bigger section. The gospel for you and me when we sense that is that God is greater than our hearts. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart for he knows everything. And maybe you have the room or in your insert at least, everything, everything. He knows everything, everything about you. The Bible is, is consistently clear. God has authority over the hearts of men. Now, the Bible is also consistently clear that God is not the author of sin when men's hearts sin. We're not absolved of our responsibility, even though God is sovereign over the hearts of men. Proverbs 21, 21, excuse me, 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, the Lord turns it wherever he will. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything, everything. He knows your heart better than you do. Most importantly, this is John's point. I think he knows that God knew what our hearts needed from the beginning. God knew what he needed to accomplish to rescue hearts that are condemnable and keep doing condemning things. God is greater than our hearts. So, there's two aspects of the gospel explicitly present in this text. The first is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. He laid his life down for you. The second is the heart converting power of the spirit of God. Explicit in this passage. That's why Pastor Bill read from Ezekiel 36 earlier. This picture that God would take a heart of stone and he's going to make it alive. He does that on the individual level. So that we want to keep his law. Jesus says in John 16, the Holy Spirit works in the heart to convince us, convict us of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, natural man can't conceive of the things of God, only those in whom the Spirit's at work. Ezekiel 37 says this isn't just on an individual scale. Ezekiel had the vision of the bones in the valley. Spirit of God blew among dead bones. And Ezekiel heard a rattling as they came to life. The Bible is consistent. God is greater than the human heart. You and I, we have deceived hearts that are sinful, prone to reject God's law just like Cain. And the gospel is that you wouldn't know the love of the Father, you wouldn't believe in the work of the Son, not with your heart in this world of rebellion, unless God had changed your heart so you would long for rescue from such world. Which means what? Well, John takes us there means if you're a Christian, it means if you've known the condemning guilt of your sin, your, your shame, your disregard of a holy God, and he's given you his Holy Spirit by which you remember in moments of trial and doubt and sense of condemnation that he sent his son to bear the full weight of your condemnable sin, and you believe in that and you believe that a payment had to be made and you couldn't pay it, but Jesus paid it for you. 
then John says very clearly, your condemnation is replaced with confidence. Do you see that? Verse 21. So if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. In the Greek, the word if can also be the word since. It depends on its semantic. So you can almost read this to say, since our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God, which means, this is important in our day, and I think, which means it doesn't matter what you feel if you believe the gospel of Jesus. It matters that God is greater than your heart. And you wouldn't feel anything, any need to repent of your sin if God hadn't done a work in you to show you your need for what he did in Christ to rescue you. It matters that God is greater than your heart, not what you feel. It matters that because he's greater than your heart, you do believe and you can believe that Christ laid himself down for you. It means that you can know you're a child of God by the love of the Father. It means that you do have the seed of his son living in you. And it means that you will be changed to be like him. This is amazing. What does John say is the next thing we then do if we have confidence, not condemnation? Look at that, verse 22. The next stop on the train is, is prayer. It's amazing. He says, we've been made to have so much confidence then whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because what will we ask for then? We've got his spirit working in us, convincing and changing our hearts, so therefore we're going to ask that he would make us to be made more like him, to obey his law, to keep it, to do what pleases him. And that's where John goes. And our assurance has increased all the more. So we ask God to change our hearts that by his love, we might become peacemakers in a world of hate. That we might have personal holiness in a world of evil. That we might be meek and full of humility in a world of pride. That we might give ourselves to that which will never pass away because we abide in him and he abides in us in a world that will pass away. And so John closes it up in verse 23. He keeps doing this in the sections, if you've noticed. He closes things up the way he starts that section. So look in the text there, verse 23. This is his commandment. Let me say it again. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by his spirit whom he's given us. I mean, that's like a loaded set of theological verses. I mean, John just like takes all the things he's talking about, wraps it all up, weaves it together. <laughs> and he says, the spirit is in you, applying Christ to you. And that affirms the father's love in you. And now you live to obey his commandments. Notice the one thing that he's changed from verse 11 to verse 23. Verse 11 says, this is the message. We should love one another. You see what's added in verse 23? This is the commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. You see the addition there? Who are those who can love God and who can lay their lives down for others in a world of hate? Those who believe in Jesus, the son of God who abides in us by faith, by the Spirit, who makes it so we don't have condemned hearts. It's not possible to have a condemned heart when Christ is living in your heart. He's the uncondemned one, the righteous one. So we can have confidence that God is not just greater than our ups and downs. Don't settle for such wimpy theology. You need a theology that says God is greater than your heart in spite of the ups and downs. When you don't understand what's up or what's down or what's going to come tomorrow. 
You can take it to the bank by the Spirit's deposit in you. Your heart will not be condemned when you stand before God if Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So Christian, you've been loved radically. I've been loved radically. And when by God's grace we see just how unloving we are, run to the Father of forgiveness through the Christ who laid himself down for you. And ask, because he delights to hear your prayer, that you would be made more like him. And I believe, Christ Community Church, we've only seen the beginning of what it will look like for us to love one another until he comes. I think we're a pretty loving church. Yesterday's hike was amazing. Lots of fun. Lots of love. I told somebody I was hiking next to that after five and six years in a previous church context, I couldn't do it anymore. I was so isolated and alone. I could see the isolation and aloneness of my family. I was like, anything but this, I need to go. I just need to do something different. And I'm not implying there wasn't love there. Maybe it was my heart that didn't know how to love, but I will tell you, five and six years into Christ Community Church, There's a lot of love in this place because Christ is at work in your hearts by faith. There's been a lot of suffering in your lives. There's been a lot of pain in your lives. But we ought and we must, in any conflict, in any confusion, whenever confronted by someone's shame and guilt, we must be a people who love like Christ radically loved us. And we must be a people not afraid of the children of Cain, and the hate in this world. I plead for you to enter into the loving relationships that God has put in this church for your good, for God's glory, and for the kingdom's advancement. Let me pray.